0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the CG Garage. This is episode number 340 featuring Bernie Frischer, digital archaeologist and founder and president of Flyover Zone Productions. This is a fascinating podcast with a really cool guy talking about archaeology. Kristen, what did you think about this?
1: (laughs) There was so much in this. One, he's Mm -hmm. a language master. I Mm -hmm. couldn't believe all the stuff he knows. Um, And he writes about virtual heritage, classics, and the survival of the classical world. Um, And his career kind of stemmed from his interest in classical language in the movie business, um, which his family owned a bunch of cinemas, which was cool. Um, And then archaeology was kind of his way to integrate all his interests. Um, And... He's right now, you guys talked about this, I'm not going to say it correctly, but you're, he's reconstructing Rome virtually and you talked about it being like a metaverse and you got into mm-hmm. that. Um, and then what Flyover Zone is, his company, um, I, I like the little pun he said it was, <laughs> or not pun, uh, it's the famous Flyover Zone in the U.S., um, right. and And they use 3D digital technologies to recreate important cultural monuments around the world for the public um, and just to keep love of the cultural heritage alive among young people and to help scholars. Um, And as he said, you can see old things in a new way. So it, it was just a multitude of things he talked about and is super interesting
0: yeah he's a fascinating person for sure I mean basically you know as he, he like you said he's a he's an archaeologist and he's got a passion for recreating digital uh, versions of old cities like Rome for example uh, in, in digitally and he's recreated Rome m- multiple times due to, to as the technology gets better and better he's able to get more details or whatever he's doing and we talk about that uh, at length and he's actually been using uh, 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 chaos cloud quite a bit recently so that's how we got to know uh, uh, Bernie but he's a really fascinating Person and talking about the digital world and archaeology. I actually have an interest in archaeology myself, having lived in uh, both uh, Cairo and Athens as a child. So uh, we talk a little bit about that. Uh, so yeah, it was fascinating talking uh, talking to him and finding out all of the cool things that he's done. He knows a lot of people that I know as well. I mean, he worked, he helped uh, as well with. Uh, Paul DeBevick on the Partnon Project way back when. So really fascinating person. Uh, Great to have uh, uh, Bernie on to discuss all these amazing things. And yes, he is definitely a language expert, as you said. (laughs) All right. We've got a couple of uh, announcements. Uh, Kristen, what's going on?
1: Yeah, so you can find this one out at chaos.com slash events. This is our big one. We've been talking about the last few weeks, but it's 24 hours of chaos. We did it last year for the first time. Um, It's going to be September 9th and 10th. It's 12 back-to-back shows with more than 60 hosts, speakers, and guests, all in a 24-hour live stream. Um, And you can find out more about this at chaos.com slash 24 hours. Hours spelled out. Yep. H-R-U-R-S. that's correct and so <laughs>
0: that's correct Yes, this is our second edition of the 24 hours of chaos it was a blast last year and I can't wait to do it again this year uh, we will be covering the west coast zone uh, of, uh, of the of the stream which will be a lot of fun uh, and uh, yeah so uh, please join us that's again September 9th and 10th uh, and it'll be uh, all of that information is available chaos.com slash 24 hours the number 24 and then hours spelled out we have uh, a couple of product announcements or at least one big product announcement. What can you tell us, Kristen? Yes. Uh,
1: V-Ray 5 for Unreal is available now.
0: Yes, that is correct. Mm-hmm. I am very excited because I have been doing a lot of work, actually, for V-Ray 5 or V-Ray for Unreal. Uh, it's really cool. So now V-Ray 5 is available there, which is a pretty nice update. And there's some really great things that have been added to V-Ray 5 for Unreal. So go check it out uh, at chaos.com. Now, if people want to know more about the podcast, where can they go?
1: You can go to facebook.com slash CG Garage Podcast or chaos.com slash CG Garage. And if you'd like to watch us, go to youtube.com slash chaos TV.
0: Perfect. And if you guys have ideas of other podcasts or have questions about this podcast or have some suggestions of any kind, please let us know. Our email is labs at chaosgroup.com And that we can't wait to hear from you. We've gotten some great suggestions in the past, and we really would love to hear your suggestions if you have them. Uh, And if you have, uh, of course, if you want to rate us, uh, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review and a rating there and share us with all of your friends and family. But for now, please enjoy episode 340 featuring Bernie Fisher, digital archaeologist, founder, and president of Flyover Zone Productions. Welcome to another CG garage where the Chaos
1: Group talks. You'll know it's over when the last bucket drops. We're gonna fire off rays. In high dynamic range, we know that ambient occlusion is passé. Global illumination won't lead you astray. And while image-based lighting is really swell,
0: you need to make sure everything has for now. I have a little bit of a soft spot for archaeology. I don't know if, uh, well, you probably don't know this, but I was actually, as an American, I was actually born in Cairo. And I lived in Cairo when I was uh, very young. And then after that, we moved to Athens. So uh, oh. I spent a lot of time in both, <laughs> uh, Egypt archaeo- Egyptian archaeology and, and ancient Greek archaeology. So I do have and we have a lot of archaeology friends, as you can imagine. So I'm very curious about this. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts a little bit about how you got into archaeology and then how you got into computer graphics and how you ended up marrying these two things together. So a little, a little bit about your past would be fascinating.
2: Great well, uh, thanks for inviting me uh, to talk. I, I appreciate it very much. So to explain how I got to where I am now at age seventy two as a digital archaeologist, we have to go back to my youth where I always had the uh, virtue I was the virtue of interdisciplinary studies was instilled uh, into me even in junior high and high school. I went to a very innovative public school in Beechwood, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland on the east side, and that school system uh, was proud of a interdisciplinary uh, humanities program that it developed. So that at the same time you would be studying, say, world history, you would also study world literature. And to what, whatever extent possible, other arts and sciences were synchronized with your advance through historical periods from antiquity and then eventually by senior year down to the modern world. So um, an interdisciplinary approach to things was instilled in me at a young age. And when I got to college, of course, like everybody else, I had to have a major. And my major was classical studies, which primarily was Greek and Latin. But I always wanted to go to uh, Rome and Athens and elsewhere in the classical world. But first I had to get my PhD, which I did in Heidelberg, again in, in Greek and Latin language, literature, philosophy, that sort of thing. And then I was fortunate enough to win a postdoc, uh, a thing called the Prix de Rome, the Rome Prize in Classical Studies at the American Academy in Rome. And back then, uh, the fellowship lasted for two years, and you had to propose, you know, whatever it was you're going to do. And I proposed adding archaeology to my toolkit, my intellectual toolkit. And I, uh, so I, I, I did that. I, I was fortunate enough to win the fellowship. I went there, and the great American Roman archaeologist Frank Brown was getting toward the end of his career, was still active, and took me on and mentored me. And I was able to draw on some of my technical background, my hobbies. As a teenager, I had a third-class radio license, so I got into electronics. I had a dark room, so I was very involved with photography. And I wanted to be a filmmaker, actually, when I was growing up. My family owned cinemas, and my uncle was chief barker of the Variety Club tent in Cleveland for many years. So we're very involved in wow. the movie <laughs> business. Anyway... <laughs> Archaeology was a way to integrate all of these sort of interests I found. and um, so then when I got my first teaching job, which was at UCLA way back in 1976, I was half time in classical studies teaching like golden Latin poets and Greek tragedians, and half time in uh, classical archaeology. So um, that in a nutshell, was how I got involved. The archaeology came to have preponderant weight in my you know thinking and publications over the years and the classical part kind of receded, although I still love classical literature and classical authors.
0: Interesting. Interesting. I think the classics are very, you know, I took Latin in school. It was, it was tough, uh, for me actually, because I was, uh, I'm dyslexic as well. So Latin, Latin and dyslexia do not go so well together sometimes. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was a, it was a, it was definitely very interesting, uh, for sure. I, I, uh, I, so, so you didn't really sort of get into archaeology. That sort of was like almost like a—but it makes sense, to, I guess, to have um, uh, classical languages and archaeology. I mean, it must definitely help your archaeology n- knowing all of those things about the language, especially at that time, right?
2: Absolutely. And another thing that helps is modern languages because so much of the, of the archaeological literature is in German, French, Italian and then, of course, the language of whatever uh, country it is you're working in. So, right. uh, I, I'm also a great believer in study abroad. I was head of study abroad at UCLA in the 1990s. And I myself went to Germany to Tubingen my junior year. And I did my PhD in Heidelberg. So, right. I'm fluent in German. And then, when I went to Rome, first thing I did was uh, get a tutor to learn Italian. And I'm also fluent in Italian. Mm-hmm. And I've studied other right. languages, including you know Middle Egyptian and Hebrew and Turkish and so on. Uh, at least I have a smattering that's pretty of those amazing. languages. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's really amazing. And I, I, I just find that uh, that fascinating. And that sort of studying those those things were, were great. What was your What was your interest in Rome? I mean, I noticed you have a big interest in Rome. Obviously, what drew you to 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 the uh, Roman culture and the the, the 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 intrigue and that mystery that was going on there?
2: Here, I have to uh, admit to kind of a character defect. Actually, when I was in college and high school, uh, mm-hmm. I was much more attracted to Greek literature, Greek culture. And okay. in college, I spent. I probably took two Greek courses for every one Latin course uh, that I took. In fact, I had five years of Latin in high school. And uh, I promised myself when I left high school I would never study Latin again because I found it so boring, really. I was good at it. I got a five on the AP Latin exam. Uh, But here's how nerdy I was. I I refused to go to my high school graduation unless my parents sent me to the intensive Greek program at the University of Michigan. I wanted to hit college with one year of college Greek under my belt, which I did. And uh, I still love Greek much more philosophy, the tragedians. My first publication was on the tragedian Euripides, published when I was 19 years old. And then what happened? Well, then... I visited Athens and I visited Rome. And this is where the defect in my character comes in. I mean, the the cuisine, the people, the cultural richness, the 3,000 years of uninterrupted, you know, culture of Rome just dwarfed Athens. I still love Athens. But to me, it you know, it's like Greek cuisine versus Italian cuisine. Greek cuisine is kind of a, a, a one-liner. It's, you know, Greek salad and lamb and yep. it's great i love it but you know after a week it, you get tired of it it's repetitive italian cuisine with all the regions and the varieties of pastas and sauces and second courses and desserts i mean it's infinite it's one of the really so that's my my my, my defect as a person <laughs> is that i gave in to the to the charm of italian culture i really fell in love with italy and i thought all right well if i'm going to be in italy i better concentrate more on the romans than on the Greeks. Never right. forgetting the Greeks, of course. We can't forget the Greeks. The, the Romans, we can't forget uh, the Greeks. They're great, great philosophers. The
0: yeah, yes, yeah. indeed. I, I lived in I lived in Greece for eleven years, so I'm very familiar with <laughs> what you're what you're talking about. Uh, but yes, but I do I do. There's a lot of things that are to love about Greece as well, especially the islands. The islands are, are fantastic. Sure. Uh, oh, and aware. I love
2: Greece, and I don't mean to be demeaning to Greece. But if you have a no, choice, no, no, no. For what you're going to spend your life. I get on, it when you all.
0: say about the food. The, the Greek food is very good. But you're right. you know, you go to a taverna; it's pretty much there's no menu. It's all the same thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and I love it, but you know, it doesn't compare to Italian. I think the maybe, yeah, I get it. The a, a reasonable Greek a, would be the first to admit that.
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, now, now, so, so, what around what time are we looking at? So now, you're inter- You've got you've got your interest in archaeology. At what point did computer graphics start to come into play here, and and your idea of reconstructing history in some way?
2: Yes. Uh, well. You know, my generation was the generation of the '60s, and we wanted to be rebels. We, and we thought our revolution would be a political revolution. It turned out mm-hmm. to be the computer revolution. And uh, you know, when I hear the people today. Making fun of disparaging or making disparaging remarks about the boomers, uh, which I'm—I was born in 1949, so I'm right in the middle of the boomer generation. Well, we gave you the computer revolution. That's that's our major contribution. So, how did I get involved in that? Well, I started in physics in college. We had to learn computer programming, write a program, something very simple, which I did. That put computing into my mental map. And then, um, when um, in the 1970s, I had a lot of friends that. At UCLA obviously once I got there in the sciences and one of them was a very close friend a chemist who got her first personal computer in 1980 and I said to her should I get one of those and started investigating it by 1981 I got my first personal computer and got involved in the personal computer club of UCLA and I became head of humanities uh, computing in what 1987 88 right before I went to mm. Italy to run the study abroad programs of the University of California in, in Italy for a couple of years and uh, so that that got me hooked on computing. I got a grant from the Getty Trust to put all of the digital uh, texts of Greek and Latin together onto a server and put it on the Internet, which was very new then. It was uh, really only available with a defense department contract. And make it available at the Getty Research Center and at UCLA in my department. We did that. I think I can claim to have been the first to put the Greek and Latin authors uh, onto the Internet. And then... Um, of course, as a, somebody who is doing uh, 50% of his career, spending 50% of his career in archaeology, I wanted to also uh, apply computing to that. So, as early as 1974, I had this vision of digitizing a great physical model of ancient Rome. And I studied different technical ways of doing that, uh, starting with video and video disc. And uh, by 1989-90, I could see that just digitizing that physical model wouldn't cut it because it was lacking in, in detail, architectural detail, to warrant a close look. It was made to be seen from a balcony. It's at a scale of 1 to 250, blow it up 1 to 1, and you got a lot of kind of blank white plaster walls of of the of all those little models. So mm-hmm. I needed to get into CAD. Luckily, UCLA a School of Architecture, where I had a very dear friend, uh, famous ar- architect um, who died of AIDS, unfortunately, in 1996. But he introduced me to the CAD group, Computer Aided Design, That was, and UCLA was one of the centers for where CAD was developed. And Bill Mitchell was uh, the professor who was driving that, became the head of architecture at MIT and oversaw the Media Lab, the famous Media Lab, and yeah. he was a friend. So I became aware of this, and there was a thing called the Urban Simulation Lab uh, in the School of Architecture, which was dedicated to making 3D models, first of downtown LA and then eventually the whole LA Basin. I took the course in 3D modeling, so now we're like 1994, 95. I got a grant from a local foundation, started on Rome Reborn, the digital recreation of ancient Rome in the same period. That's why I was studying this. So that's how that came about. I was just fortunate to be at a place where CAD was very strong, and I knew the right people and got involved that way.
0: That is a very important part in time in the digital world. I mean, I went to I went to architecture school, believe it or not, in uh, '93 at Rice University in 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 Houston. Oh, Great school. And yeah, and school. Uh, yeah, and it it was. We were just studying all the stuff that was going on digitally. I gravitated towards the computer graphic area. People were like, "Well, you know, I guess I got to learn CAD." And I was like, "No, I want to go all the way with computer graphics." And I sort of definitely knew what Mitchell was doing and all the all the stuff and the the the, the model of the LA basin, very aware of that. So you were right in the thick of it at that time. Yeah. That must have been a very exciting time. <laughs>
2: It it, it was. Uh, And, you know, we had the attention of the trustees of the Getty Trust, and they Mm -hmm. uh, were sponsoring some early virtual reality. The first time I became aware of virtual reality was about 1991, too, when a a company in uh, in Rome called Infobite was uh, hired by the Getty Trust to make a virtual reality experience of the tomb of Nefertari. And that caused quite a stir in L.A. And then I was hired by the Getty Trust to collaborate on the opening of the Brentwood Center, the Getty-Brentwood Center. And in particular, the gallery where the department, the school, not the school, but the unit of education at the Getty and the antiquities department of the Getty Museum were going to collaborate on a virtual reality project. And they uh, decided, with my advice, to work on Trajan's Forum. So we made a virtual reconstruction of Trajan's Forum using that urban simulation group as our, our lab. And uh, so, yeah, I was, I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. And then to have patronage in the foundations that supported me, philanthropists in the LA area that got it and uh, helped out with money, which was very exp- important at that time because Nowadays, where you've got every city and university around the world wants to be the center of gaming, and they see you know dollar signs or euro signs or whatever their currency is. When you say gaming, uh, they want to build the local economy around that. You, the The skills. Are, are, are ubiquitous and you can get skillful 3d modelers for very little but back then when it was all very new and we were competing against hollywood studios the i remember going to visit the warner brothers digital studio very advanced place they were sucking up all the the talent pool which was very small back then and we had to pay a lot of money uh, to uh, hire competent people and the equipment we were all stuck on the SGI, the Silicon Graphics platform, where the computers yep. were you know, millions of dollars and the software was tens of thousands of dollars a seat. So it was all yep. very expensive. So without that financial support and the vision of these philanthropists, we couldn't have gotten anywhere either.
0: Yeah, at that time it was like you said it was very expensive. I used to estimate pretty much it, it it would it would be about a quarter million dollars per seat that you had to, you know, including yeah. the the hardware, the, the the salary, the software. It was all extremely yeah. expensive back then. It was really expensive. Uh, yeah, so so that's really interesting that you were you were you were sort of you know really trying to push the envelope in in, in archaeology at the same time that the movie industry had just really started to get into it in the movie industry as well. So you were competing against the people that were in the movie industry while secretly inside you wanted to be a filmmaker at some time point, right?
2: That's right. And <laughs> we had a visionary vice chancellor for research, Kumar Patel, who was one of the developers of the laser in his student days at Stanford, and And then Mm -hmm. rose to be head of Bell Labs. And then he came to UCLA as the vice chancellor for research. And he brought a whole new model of funding research to UCLA, which I won't go into. But he introduced me. He had a council of advisors that included a lot of people in the movie industry. And he thought that what we were doing could be of use to the movie industry. So we were competing in a way, yeah, on a a low level for for staff. But on a higher Mm -hmm. level, he was thinking there could be collaboration and set up some meetings with me and studio executives. But they all probably rightly thought that this was um it was the idea that for example for gladiator you the film would benefit from having our th- very accurate 3d model of the coliseum as opposed to the one their art director came up with was not necessary it i i did make the point that okay it, that, maybe historical accuracy isn't important because your audience will never know that things are wrong and they were wildly wrong with the coliseum of in in that movie which i love but what if it's cheaper and quicker just to do it right i mean we've already done it so why not license it from us rather than starting right. from scratch but anyway i I got no traction with them we were hoping that that we could but we didn't
0: that that they don't always the movie industry doesn't always go with accuracy sometimes like a velociraptor is actually the size of a turkey, and <laughs> it's much smaller than they have it in Jurassic Park. <laughs> so, and I understand it. And I taught a course
2: yeah. on Hollywood in the ancient world and uh-huh. uh, going through these classic Roman movies. And and I thought that the advantage was uh, that, first of all, it got kids interested. It, it, they became aware of of Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, et cetera, et cetera through a movie and a much more – immediate way than by reading about a figure like a historical figure like that secondly the the mistakes were great because that's that's exactly what I assigned to the students read the historical sources to figure out what we we know happened and then compare it to the movie version and write a paper of compare and contrast and figure out what the artistic reason for the departures I mean there's nothing these are works of fiction so they have poetic license right. I'm all for that so s- establish the relationship of truth and fiction and then try to figure out the artistic reason for those departures from the truth. Because, again, why not just tell the story the way uh, Plu- of the assassination of Julius Caesar the way Plutarch does? Why make it up? That comp- complicates things. You have to think. <laughs> why not just stick right. to what actually happened?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That sounds fascinating. Now, it obviously makes sense, you know, uh, you know. I always say the computer graphics and CAD make sense when it comes to architecture, but reconstructing historic things on a computer to preserve them in a digital fashion also seems to be make a lot of sense. Was what I mean, besides the idea of preservation, what were the other motivations that you felt were important uh, in digitizing archaeology in, in, in that way?
2: Well, the field of uh, Roman topography, so the history of the city of Rome, Uh, when i came along was completely disorganized i mean i I remember a professor of the subject from university of illinois uh, gave me a tour very kindly gave me a tour of the library of the american academy of Rome, a great research library uh, to point out just what are the classic uh, reference works uh, available for studying the city of rome in antiquity and we were popping around the library there was there was no synthetic work and uh, it was really just a mess so luckily I was there for two years. I devoted myself nonstop to the study of ancient Rome. I had a great mentor, Frank Brown, who'd been there since the early 1930s and, and poured out his heart and soul into uh, walks and talks with the fellows to uh, orient us to the ruins and, and the way the city really was. And then we had that physical model. And that physical model was really important that I referred to earlier of the built over a 40-year period by Italo Gismondi and uh, some model makers and displayed in a museum in Rome, the Museum of Roman Civilization. And so this all gave me the idea that Look, the easiest way to integrate all this knowledge is through a model. We have the physical model, but the physical model doesn't talk and you can't mark it up. It's not interactive. The good thing about digital technology is you could click on a building, say, what is this? And open up a window and get some basic information, get some links. So do a a hypermedia approach where you can bring in the different disparate resources, right all together with the visualization that that, that they re- refer to. So that was that was the idea that the educational use that and I really believe that for example our company has tours of ancient Rome and now we're doing Greece and Egypt and and Tenochtitlan Me- ancient Mexico City and I really believe that you know since these are put together by experts they reflect the reconstructions developed by experts and then the same experts turn around and write the scripts or are interviewed Um, in our presentations, in our guided tours, that after three hours in our Roman forum, for example, the average intelligent person will know as much or more than a PhD in the subject, a young PhD Hmm. in the subject, Um, because it, Uh, It's like you know, how who will know more about the symphonies of Beethoven? Somebody who's an intelligent listener and knows understands music, but listens to, say, the Herbert von Karajan recordings of the nine symphonies, or somebody who comes to Beethoven for the first time, and and only has the musical scores and sort of laboriously goes through them. I'm not saying that that can't be a good and valid approach, too, but it'll obviously take a lot longer than just sitting back and listening for whatever it would be, nine to 12 hours to a, all the symphonies.
0: Yes, it, it's true, but there's also the, I mean, I think there's something visual about it that allows you to learn, you're able to, to remember yeah. things much better with yes. a visual reference, yes, right? Yes, absolutely, and, and to see and things the visual... and to
2: have insights and to have new ideas, even, to go beyond what we already know. And that is on the research side. So I think the main thrust of what we're doing is it was always from the start educational, but it also involved what I call sympiricism or empirical studies supported by computer simulations. And the problem with the study of the past is it's never been empirical because we can never go back in time to run experiments or make observations. But once we have these models that are as accurate as we can make them, It's as if we have a model of a galaxy and then we want to see, well, uh, you know, how far is it, how fast is it receding from our galaxy or how, you know, what's its relationship to the other galaxies in its local area? Well, you can't do that by observation because these things play out over many, many years, millions of years, way beyond one lifetime. And you can't go there and make the observations close up because they're also so far away. So you make, in astronomy, you work with computer simulations. Almost exclusively yeah. now.
0: Yeah, but and okay, the so, same so. thing
2: with historical problems. We can't go back in time, but we can recreate the past and run experiments and recreate experiences.
0: I think the analogy to the to, to galaxies is, is obviously a lot of uh, – it's very good because there's obviously – there's some interpretation that goes on in both. There has to be because there's missing yes. data that you have to fill in, right? Yes, yes <laughs> so, absolutely. So how how do you – how it's, I, know, I know this is obviously a fundamental part of archaeology, but how do you – what is the process of filling in the missing information that you, when you see – you know, obviously a lot of these – uh, historical places are in ruins, and you have to interpret them like, okay, this is what it probably looked like. So how do you fill that in? What is what is the process of that?
2: Well, remember, uh, I always like to, when people bring this up, I always like to refer to the inscription Plato put over the entrance to the academy in ancient Athens, um, only those who know geometry may enter. And what I say for archaeology is only those who can tolerate uncertainty may enter if you don't like uncertainty go into some other uh, branch of 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 study like you know 20th century history where your problem is the opposite you've got too many documents um, right. too too much uh, information to to boil down and, and and get get on top of with anything archaeological you're always going to encounter the problem of uncertainty. So of course, archaeologists have developed best practices for how to um, deal with uncertainty. And in this particular field, we have the London Charter and then the Seville principles of virtual archaeology that have developed. And I was uh, a supporter of these two initiatives. Uh, And uh, the the earlier one, the London Charter, actually builds on an article that I published with a number of other people in in the 1990s about this and um the best practice is first of all you you have to be totally honest and open first with yourself to start out with but then eventually with your audience whether it's a professional audience or the general public we're not pulling the wool over anyone's eyes here uh, about what is definitely known and what we had to make up to fill the gaps secondly in making it up you have to flag that hypothetical part of the restoration and you do that in one of three ways either visually for example you could leave the hypothetical uh, parts of your scene in wireframe format and not make them solid and textured and photorealistic but just leave them in wireframe that's already a visual clue that hey there's something a little bit sketchy or going on Uh, or you could do it textually you could just write you know in the level of metadata you can say you know in this scene, we're for, we for sure know the foundations and we know the first order, but anything above that, that superstructure, is um, has been supplemented. And then you have to give the reason or the, the method, usually on the basis of analogy. Okay, we don't have this particular apartment building, but we we know enough about it that, and we know that there were only a certain limited number of types of Roman architecture. Um, apartment buildings. We know what type it was, so we can guess what it must have looked like. Um, you give the reason, and then the third approach is a hybrid where you you could have a visual clue and obviously the text textual explanation going along with it. And um, so, in in effect, I always like to say this is in in, in the Gutenbergian medium of scholarly writing. It's like having footnotes. The uh, obligation that you have as a scholar is not just to give your conclusions and your opinions but to flag any disagreement, any alternative views. And at a minimum, you would do that in a footnote where you would cite the alternative view and ideally say a few words about why you think your view is better than the alternative view. So these are, our, in effect, our footnotes. And we, and this is a very big thing that we had to work out in the 1990s. How are we going to tame, and you know, I actually talked about it this week, tame this new medium for scholarly use, for scientific use? Right. And it had been developed for artistic use, which is great. But we're going to tame it as scholars and do the same kind of things like footnotes and bibliography uh, that uh, – I'm going to move this a little bit farther away because I think okay. I'm getting some pop – um, that we would do in writing. We had to figure out how to do the same analogous kinds of moves, intellectual moves you know, in this visual medium.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very interesting thing. You know, I think the visual medium is is really fascinating. Um, in one of one of the people who influenced um, my my passion in computer graphics really actually lied in, in lighting, believe it or not. And one uh, of my uh, people who influenced a lot of my uh, the things that I do and inspired me a lot of ways is actually Paul DeBevic, who's now a good a good oh, friend yeah, of mine. My friend of mine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes. And uh,
0: Paul Paul was really his some of his first big projects that he got a lot of notoriety at were specifically about archaeology and about things like that. In fact, I think I helped him a little bit with the Parthenon project, which was incredible. I
2: helped him with the Parthenon project too. Just at the, okay. initially at the level of introducing him to some of the people that, who knew a lot about the Parthenon. Yes, right. and uh, it was a great project.
0: It is a great project, and it really sort of taught me a little bit about how how far you can get into details and how far you can try to preserve the truth, right? Like It's like, this is how far Paul could get. It's like, based on the information I got, this is how much I could get out of it. And it was really a fascinating project, and I thought it was really well done. And it certainly... revived my interest in in archaeology and the in the in in that medium but how you know obviously from 1990 early 1990s to today computer graphics has changed quite a bit and so how has those changes how have those changes uh, affected what you're able to do and what you're able to see and what you're able to to use this this material for can you can you tell me a little bit about how that evolution has helped you guys
2: Yes, I always say that I obviously did something wrong in a previous life, and I'm being made to pay for it by having to rebuild the city of ancient Rome, which is 7,000 buildings in about 25 square kilometers. Not once, not twice, not three times, but we're on the fourth time. (laughs) Partly because, uh, I would say largely because of the changes in computer graphics, where we can do more and more, and it looks better and better, and we can go from only being able to realistically for our end user, provide still images, to realistically provide, um, you know, 1080p video, to now being able to finally do what we set out to do way back when I first proposed doing this in 1986 at a private conference at Apple, which was pub- my paper was published in 88, uh, real-time uh, free-roaming around the scene in the company of avatars who who... Who uh, represent you know the cultural knowledge the people of ancient Rome or ancient Greece and explain to you what you're seeing and or you can observe them going about their everyday activities and figure out for yourself what it is that they're um, that they that they were up to so finally we're able to do that we finally uh, have the Uh, ability. I've got some great staff in my company. Luckily, we continued to attract support. Obviously, it had ups and downs. The 2008 recession didn't help at all, set us back for a few years. But in recent years, we've had um, some very generous support again, uh, investing in the company. And we've been able to put together a crack team of, of, of CG specialists of all kinds who range as far afield as Georgia and Alexandria, the country of Georgia, Tbilisi, and Alexandria in Egypt, uh, but also locally here in Indiana, um, we have some uh, wonderful uh, graduates of the of my university, Indiana University, because my other hat that I wear is a professor of informatics, archaeoinformatics, to be precise. Oh, okay. <laughs> I teach I teach well, virtual arch- virtual heritage, we call it
0: so um, i don't know if that was too vague
2: but uh but in those in broad strokes uh our project our project primarily rome reborn we said rome was our laboratory once we figured out how to do ancient rome we could do anything so now we're moving into athens as i said in egypt and mexico and we eventually would like to cover the four corners of, of the earth um we the, all these changes were driven by improvements in the hardware and software that allowed us to do more and more and get a better visual quality at, at the same time. So it was a great twofer. Usually, right. those are those were trade-offs. Like. <laughs>
0: What, um, were of, what were some? What were some of the? Th- <laughs> obviously, speed of hardware is a is a big factor. But you know, in terms of what it was uh, enabling you guys to do, I mean, what else? What, what were some of the other things that were happening? I think you obviously mentioned VR was a uh, part of your initiative at the at least at one point. Uh, it may be later as well. Uh, so how did how did those those different technologies change the way that you were looking at things in some ways?
2: Well, I started out um, really hoping to do a VR presentation of uh, these ancient sites and UCLA architecture school was very um, had a very close working relationship with SGI and had um, SGI equipment and we had a um, a, a so-called um, visualization lab. We had the what did they call that the that three that three D sc- screen that was curved in two dimensions and had the active mm. stereo glasses. I forget what SGI called that screen, but we had that at UCLA. It cost a huge amount of money, and that was available for our group to use. Um, so that's what where we started was immersive virtual reality. But then um, since we could only output our work on that platform, and most colleges and universities, let alone high schools and the general public, didn't have that equipment um, and had no access to it, we thought, all right, well, let's be realistic here and let's output for just a standard Mac or, or, or PC. And that means we're going to have to settle with, as I said, 2D views, maybe panos. We can generate pan- panoramas. We had some NSF funding to do that to output our real-time models, a series of panos around the Roman Forum. We did it, that project in 2002 to five, And then video, OK, we can render out frames of video at different resolutions, which has always gotten, you know, I, we started out, we didn't even, we started out at SD and then got to 720 and then 1080 and then 4K and 8K. Um, so, but we always wanted to circle back and do the real-time uh, version with free roaming, uh, not necessarily for a totally immersive um, um, monitor headset or cave or or, or whatever the various uh uh, platforms might be for virtual reality, but even at the level of a smartphone, um, but just allow people to move around in real time, which is, um, requires a lot of comput- computing power and requires a lot of cleverness in the way your developers uh, put the virtual world together, especially if it's a big thing like a city, as mm-hmm. you know, so... Um, that's the way in which the changes of technology have impacted us. But I think we've reached a kind of a golden age here where the cost of doing this and the knowledge of how to do it uh, across all these different platforms has reached a point where it's now possible to, to implement the original vision of the mid-1980s.
0: right. Right which is interesting, I think obviously you know real-time real-time technology has changed quite a bit uh, just recently, uh, and I think that's obviously highly driven by the game world that is now the game world is trying to enter the uh, the, the rest of the world at the same time, right So yes, uh, yes those and th- those tools are go ahead, yeah.
2: yeah, and like our development team uh, here locally, the grad the graduates of Indiana University are coming. Uh, out of computer science and, the, and our game program. And so that there, there's a lot of talent also that's uh, been gifted to us by the game industry. And right. not everybody who graduates from the game industry can get a job in the game industry.
0: Right. Well, you could always develop, you know, Grand Theft Chariot in Rome and make it a... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> And an, an official make a little bit of both. It's like, yes, you're playing a game, but you're going to learn about ancient Rome at the same time.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, and indeed, we, we, we put, uh, do want to circle back and, and work on an app that's almost finished, which is called the uh, uh, Historical Games of Ancient Rome. It's not, not going to be called. That's going to be called Spectacles of Ancient Rome. It's going to be chariot racing, the gladiatorial combats, the animal hunts, and uh, the sea, mock sea battles. And we're pretty close to finishing that. And if any viewer out here is connected with a major game company, we've got it. We've we've got it all mocked marked up, and mm-hmm. it's functional. We know the rules and everything. But where what's given us pauses, we have a limited amount of development money, and to really create a a class A game is extremely expensive. So we've we've got the bare bones of how it should work, what the rules are, and what the logic is, but to really make it competitive on a world market uh, would require a big investment. So we don't, we're not in a position to make that investment. If anybody wants to team up with us, I'd love to hear from you.
0: Yeah, that would be, that would be really, really great. I mean, we know, I know a couple of people in the gaming industry that we could very well be interested. I will try to reach out to them myself if you want. Because uh, I think but, we've uh, really but,
2: done, you know, we've worked on it for two years and we've uh, done the hard part, which is just figuring out what, what were these games and how did, what were the rules and how many competitors right. did they have? And what did they wear? and Where do they go? and what did they do? And we have it all mocked up, but it just doesn't look, it doesn't look good enough to, uh, uh, attract the average teenager out there who plays games. Right.
0: That's, that is interesting, but I think that you, you do bring up a good point. It's like it's always tricky, you know. As a, as a as a father of teenagers, it is always tricky to try to get them to 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 get interested in things that are s- sneaky in trying to educate them at the same time. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but, and, <it's, laughs> and
2: and this will do it. These this Roman spectacles will definitely do that. You'll learn a lot about ancient Rome this way, not only about the particular game, but about the you know, who's who are the, who are the spectators and. Uh, the money and where do these animals come from uh, well the empire what's the roman empire i mean it's on and on uh. The chariot race, all in honor of the sun god. Well, what do we know about Roman religion? What does chariot racing have to do with the sun god? Well, the sun was thought to be a god in a chariot going across the sky. So right Right. at the finish line, there's a temple of the sun god, and the winner is considered to be the person most favored by the sun god, the embodiment of the sun god, if you will. And they have right at the finishing line, therefore, an obelisk from Egypt. Why an obelisk? Because to the Egyptians and the Romans knew this, an obelisk symbolizes a sunbeam. So, of course, this is all solar, solar religion. So there's an obelisk, there's a temple of the sun, and the winner is the embodiment of the sun, sun god. So, you know, you can learn a lot of tangential things that take you off in all kinds of directions.
0: That is excellent information. First of all, I, I didn't know all of that, which is great. then uh, second, that is definitely <laughs> game material. <laughs> Materials, you're absolutely right. Like material games will embody like, well, why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why did that happen? And you have to sort of that, the, that process of learning this information to get to the next step actually mm-hmm. is fantastic information. Yeah, I can definitely see that happening, Bernie. That would be an amazing game to play actually. <laughs> Or the chariot um,
2: races, the teams, the reds, the whites, the greens, the blues, and the way in which the, you know, we have people who are fans of the Yankees or the Dodgers or this or that team. But in Rome, the population was divided between the fans of these different circus factions, as they were called, the circus teams, which all had their colors. And the colors are expressed in the uniforms of the jockeys and the decor- decorative elements that the horses wear and, uh. And then you can get into the political figures who, who uh, you know, invested in these games, like Trajan, who built this, the final version of the Circus Maximus that we think could seat somewhere between two hundred and 350,000 spectators. Big place.
0: Wow. It <laughs> is a very big place. <laughs> I believe the <laughs> Astrodome only held 80,000 people, and that was big stadiums. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean,
0: yeah, well, that's really fascinating. And Actually, you know, it's interesting. Obviously, Rome is very famous for its games, uh, so it would make sense to have more games available at that uh, in that area. Were you actually? Uh, uh, did you actually? Con- were you interested in video games at all during that whole process? What you were doing, things or, or
2: very little. I know very little about uh, video games. Um, mm. Star Trek was included with my K Pro, my first computer, and uh, I, I I went through a phase of being obsessed with that, and. My my stepdaughter, when she was a teenager, teenager, was given the original Pac-Man, and I remember scoffing at that, but then we were on sabbatical in Rome, and I saw it lying around in the apartment, and I went off uh, and hid myself in a bathroom with it. And I remember my wife and stepdaughter going around the apartment saying, where are you, Bernie, where are you? And I was too embarrassed to say that I was holed up in the bathroom playing Pac-Man, but I became quite addicted to it. But I didn't keep up uh, with it, and um, I I sort of regret that. But on the other hand, uh, I have a very long list of publications, and (laughs) I've been at many universities, taught many different subjects. So I have the feeling that the price I would have paid would have been in my... Uh, scholarly productivity.
0: Well, I, my staff, my young
2: people who work for me know all about video games. So they, yeah.
0: They well, that's great. That's great. I mean, I void. definitely think there is there is a history of computer computer games uh, that uh, have are a lot of interesting history to them. There was a there was a game called Civilization that was very popular. Oh yes. Uh, uh, yeah. I know uh, and. About and that. Mm-hmm. So, sim so I city i love sim, sim city was city. another
2: one that i actually got deeply involved in needless to say civilization sid meyer uh, civilization we had a sponsor at when I, in my ucla days in the mid 90s when that was just getting started who wanted to team us up with uh, sid meyer and thought that a 3d version of that because at that time it was totally 2d yep. could be could make sense and i think he may have actually gone off in that direction eventually
0: yeah, I think that I think it's that's true. I think what I think what's really fascinating is obviously the 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 obvious nature that that archaeology and computer graphics uh by its very nature of simulating reality uh is yes. is uh, plays a lot to do with each other. So getting into the uh getting into games uh makes sense to me. Um I also find it interesting that you were talking when you were talking about how, how much films Uh, deviate from reality from those things because of uh, artistic licenses that happen. And it's sort of, I feel it's a little bit of shame sometimes, obviously, but also, as you mentioned, it's, you know, notable.
2: I was just talking to a hedge fund that somehow has discovered us uh, invest in metaverses and they went, what's your vision? So I said, well, okay, we're, we're Flyover Zone, the virtual tourism company, so we're doing virtual tourism. But for us, that's just the low-hanging fruit because we recreate these places, and so then the easy thing is just to take people around and explain what what we did and what they're seeing. That's virtual tourism. I love it. It's very important. But the real vision, again, going back to that 1986 uh, paper that I gave at Apple, um, was. the the metaverse. It was, uh, let me cut to 2007. We gave a press conference with the mayor of Rome when Rome Reborn 1.0 was finished, and it got a lot of coverage in the international media. And Second Life, Lyndon, Lyndon Labs contacted me the next day and said, we want you to put Rome Reborn into Second Life. So you know we studied that, and the basic problem, initial problem was, well, what would this what, what would go on? I mean, it's one thing, it wouldn't just be a ghost town, something would have to go on. So I came, quickly came up with this idea that I called Ancient Life, which was, again, going back to the 1986 paper. What's Ancient Life? You come into ancient Rome as a freedman, as a recently freed slave, so you have very low status and hardly any money, and by learning a trade, uh, you you start accumulating uh, wealth, obviously, first at a modest scale, but you should learn to invest some of that wealth in your child. Everybody will be encouraged to get married and have at least one child, and you educate that child. Now, Rome was a, I always used to st- say, at UCLA, when I started my Roman civilization classes, which I taught for many years to even as many as 500 students, the Romans were the Americans of antiquity. Why? Multicultural society, merit, in principle, meritocratic society, where people could rise from very humble origins to the very top, and uh, a very open uh, society, very tolerant society, with all kinds of religions and people of racial and, and uh, religious background all Roman citizens. Eventually, Roman citizenship was granted to all freeborn people within the confines of the Roman Empire, which went from the Scottish-English border all the way over to the Iraqi-Iranian border, so really big place. And um, therefore, the game of ancient life was start low and see how far you can rise. But the game ends after uh, a certain... Limited period of time, like three months or six months, and then everybody is reincarnated as their child. So therefore, it's worth investing in the education of your child, who inherits whatever wealth you've accumulated, your, and your dwelling and whatnot. And um, if you if this if the kid has had a good education, has been rubbing you know shoulders with other higher status people. And we can attest this in Rome. Say the poet Horace, was the son of an ex-slave in southern Italy, Venosa, Venusia. And he was sent by his father to study in Rome. And who was he studying with? He was studying with the people in the cultural elite. So then eventually becomes the court poet of, of the Emperor Augustus. So he went from nothing to the top. Uh, in and 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 so that's the way Rome was, and we want people to understand that. But the way you rise up is by playing, is by role playing. So you learn how to be a cobbler. You learn how to make clothes, and you get some money. And meanwhile, Rome reborn is is largely apartment buildings. Rome was of the seven thousand known buildings, sixty eight hundred were apartment buildings. And Rome reborn, although since we use procedural city modeling we could have built out the interior spaces we didn't because there's no need to but one of the things could be there's a lot of building out to be done so as you earn money and you get your identity you can build out your own apartment and you can buy and sell apartments you can buy and sell clothes it's just like second life used to be people became millionaires right selling gear to other uh, avatars in second life that could be done in rome but in a very historically accurate you know constrained way and that would be an educational game, but it would be a game, and I think it would again, if anyone's listening who who wants to help us develop that, it would require a pretty serious investment but this hedge fund seems to be considering. Doing that, actually, at the moment. I think I like it's fascinating.
0: I mean, you mentioned you mentioned Second Life. Obviously, was one of the first metaverses, uh, uh, and you know, since then, I think obviously there's a lot of ideas of what a metaverse is and what it can do and where it serves. Do you feel, you know, you mentioned we you know we're obviously talking about games because that's an easy way to explain metaverses. But do you think yes. that basically, you know, because of you, you've reconstructed Rome four times, as you said, uh, <laughs> uh, it will continue that it probably has a, a place to live in a form of a metaverse at some point where people have that ability to visit it. Tourism is one way to do it, but you were actually referring to a place to live in a sense, virtually yeah. live in some ways.
2: Yes. Well, that was the goal. Right. Actually, the goal was even crazier. It was, we're going to lock you into like a phone booth, call it a cave. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually didn't have that term in 1986, but it, it, it it came to be called the cave, mm-hmm. um, that display with up to five walls uh, th- with uh, uh, you know computer projection behind each wall. So you seem to be in this virtual world simulated on the walls everywhere you look around you. And you weren't going to be able to emerge until you became fluent in Latin, which I thought might take about two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and even to get the food slipped under the door in the water to stay alive, you'd have to learn how to ask for it.
0: Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's pretty crazy, but uh, I like yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> but
2: I, I, I've retreated from that extreme position. <laughs> I okay. think even, even in the metaverse version I was sketching out there, I think it would be good. I think you'd be rewarded and you should be rewarded if you could learn a few words of Latin or if you're doing Athens, a few words of Greek. But you know, let's, we don't have to, we don't have to uh, insist on fluency.
0: I think that there's people definitely like you know computer games. Definitely, people like challenges, and challenges are much harder than I think that the the So I think that's a good idea. Starvation, I don't think is necessarily the correct <laughs> motivation, but <laughs> but, uh, but I think that's a that's a that's a really good idea. Well, uh, I love I love you know what you what you're doing. I think it's really great. You mentioned by the way, we we we've only. Passingly mentioned the flyover zone. So let's tell, tell, give us the big picture. Tell us a little bit more about flyover zone, what it is now, what you can do with it, and where you plan on taking it in the future.
2: <laughs> well, uh, flyover zone is first of all pun. We we we're based in Bloomington, Indiana, which is in the heart of the famous flyover zone of the United States. Yep, and uh, but it also refers to. These um virtual worlds, which even you know when I started creating them back in the nineties we when you presented it, it was called doing a fly through or a fly over, and so there's that pun going on um the mission of flyover zone is to recreate important uh cultural monuments and and sites around the world uh the more the merrier we're starting with the obvious ones uh athens rome uh uh karnak the valley of the kings pyramids of giza Uh, we did Baalbek in lebanon and now we're doing tenochtitlan um, the aztec capital underneath mexico city Uh, we would love to do something in asia Um, ideally you know something like the forbidden city but it's very hard to get access in china um, maybe we'll do something in Bali instead to stake our claim in that fourth corner of the world. And, you know, obviously in in, in, in Mesoamerica, uh, there's much more that we could do. We could do things in North America. Well, we can't do everything, and I'm sure others will come along to do other things. We seem to be the only ones doing it this way at the moment and the key thing is always to involve the world's experts on whatever site it is that we're concentrating on and if we if we can't get the experts we don't do the site and luckily there are you know in the world UNESCO World Heritage Site list gives us our targets. It's about eleven hundred sites right now. We've got that all in a database. So if we want to do site A and the expert on site A says, "Forget it, I don't want to do this," which, by the way, nobody has ever said, but let's say they would say that, we would just go on to site B. There's plenty to do, and we're a small company. We can only do a couple a year. Right. So that's the the vision is to try to build this out. Why to keep the the love of cultural heritage alive among young people first of all Um, secondly to generate to to create these resources as scholars can use as for the reason we talked about the empirical studies to by seeing new things or seeing old things in a new way to have new ideas new insights that wouldn't be possible um, otherwise most likely and um, so you know, we started with Rome. We then worked out in the Rome area, did Hadrian's Villa. We moved over to Athens and at the same time Egypt and Baalbek in Lebanon. Recently, we've put a team together for um, Mexico. And uh, that's where we are now. We're about uh, 10 full-time employees, another 15, 20 collab- part-time collaborators in eight countries on three continents. <laughs>
0: That's a lot. That's great. And uh, do you, I mean, what kind of obviously you mentioned we talked about earlier, how much harder it was to get resources to do things. Are you able to achieve, get more people to collaborate on this? Are Are you finding that young archaeology students are becoming very versed in in computer graphics at the same time? Is this things that are these, are as that, uh, you know, been able to overcome some of those hurdles?
2: Um, I think the, I wouldn't necessarily say that, although. Digital skills are, are, are spreading uh, like wildfire through, you know, all branches of the arts and sciences. Um, but we have the pros on our team who really can do that kind of work. What was most important for the young archaeologists, I would say, is just to be aware of what we're doing, not necessarily what we specifically are doing, but this kind of thing done by a lot of people now, and um, to support it. Interested in it, support it, want to get involved in it, and I remember in the old days, the heart. I would always say in UCLA in the mid '90s when I was trying to get support for what we were doing. The problem with getting support is I had to start with what's a computer, what's a file, what's a mouse. I mean, the background, the dependencies to get to what we specifically wanted to do were were so many that by the time I got to what we wanted to do, everybody was asleep and totally bored or lost. Mm-hmm. Now everybody gets that. And this, we can cut right to the chase and explain what we're, we're doing. And so that's really great. I find that easy um, to do among young people. And then, you know, I've been doing Rome Reborn for a long time. If you look at the, all the videos we posted through the years, we're somewhere between three and 4 million views. A lot of these kids have, will have seen the Rome Reborn videos, you know, in some class or other. It's, you know, there's even a Wikipedia article about it, and it's stated to be a successful project. I had nothing to do with it because you're not allowed to do your own Wikipedia articles, as you may know. But right. I was happy to see that they declared it a, su- a success in a kind of a classic digital humanities project. Um, so I think it's generally well known. So that means that the kids coming along now who are in their 20s know it, know about it. At least they've heard about it. And so it's not that hard to get them involved. It hasn't been hard at all. We've been able to, as I say, nobody's ever said no when we've asked them to collaborate of yeah. any age even the the old people who don't know anything about the the technology the people who the most conservative scholars the ones who do survey who are just the facts and you know survey the monuments they love what we're doing because we love what they're doing we use what they're doing they're the kind of experts we absolutely must have because right from the beginning I, I I saw there were, you know, free programs like, say, SketchUp, which I'm not sure existed in 1995 when we started. But I think there were things like that that were free where any 10-year-old could make the Roman Forum. But, you know, what value did it have? The people we got to do the Roman Forum were the cultural authorities administering the Roman Forum. And the people who've written the monographs about this or that feature of the Roman Forum. Those are the views that you want to concretize in 3D and um, visualize and, and that have some value, I think people
0: absolutely I think that's that's yeah absolutely I think it's wonderful that you've you know obviously you you're 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 studying a hardcore in the past and you're using the latest technology of the future to do it you know so I think it's kind of a wonderful marriage of these two of these two worlds really to try to, to do that and to communicate that to a lot of people in the way you have done uh, I mean I I did. I, I've, I've, I was reading your bio and I was reading all the stuff about you before. I didn't. So I was like, wait a minute. I know all, all of that past of when that happened in the 90s and where, where we're like, what can we do with this technology and just starting to figure it out. It was a very yeah. important time.
2: I remember back then they were saying in like 1990, 95, it was common to say virtual reality is a solution in search of a problem. Yep. that was said many many times it was a cliche about it you know very nice but what are you going to do with it but right from the beginning i said i know what the problem is the problem yeah. is i've got 500 students in a class at ucla i'm trying to teach some ancient rome i already told you the field was totally disorganized and complicated by the fact that that all those disparate studies were in different languages which the students didn't know let's clean this thing up and make it simple and approachable <laughs> through a visualization yeah. that and virtual reality visualization which was interactive where you could move around and maybe even talk to an avatar who would explain something to you um that i saw immediately yeah so
0: yeah i definitely think i think that's great and i think that you know you've the the original vision you had in the early 90s you're still you're still getting closer and closer and closer to what that you're trying to achieve in that area which is also nice finally
2: 80 86 really and you know, you can document it. You can read on academia.edu. You can download my Project Cicero paper published in 1988. Um, by the way, the people who attended that conference were Doug Engelbart, who invented the mouse, and Alan mm-hmm. Kay, who invented the user graphical interface, who Apple assigned to me to help with Rome Reborn back in the 80s and he, because he lived in in Brentwood, California, right across the street from UCLA virtually. So uh, he, Alan, uh, I'm sure you heard of Alan Kay, um, mm-hmm. was... Uh, it was a very small conference, but um, for me, it had really big uh, consequences. That's awesome. Uh, the other point I wanted to make, though, about the modern technology in the ancient studies is, actually, this is not a new thing. It's not a new thing. Um, think about photography. Okay, you've got the daguerreotype, but the photography descends from the calotype. Well, the, ta- the calotype was invented by an archaeologist, an English archaeologist, Fox Talbot. Right. right. And, you know, for use in archaeology. Or the um, or stereography stereophotography. You have the Holmes stereopticon. Well, Oliver Wendell Holmes, not the jurist, but his father, who's a professor of medicine at Harvard, in about 1850, um, proposed panoramic photography to document the monuments. And he said, well, once you did that you didn't need the monuments anymore you could throw them away or destroy them they wouldn't serve any purpose you'd have them all reduced to uh, panos and that became a very successful company every middle class yep. family in america had a stereopticon in their living room by the year 1900 not yeah. necessarily made by the holmes company but by the um by the, by the all the others who were competing against holmes so LIDAR scanners, too, I believe. There's a natural relationship (laughs) between new new tech and and archaeology, actually. Because these monuments uh, have a perennial uh, appeal. And so, you know, entrepreneurs come along and say, ah, we can tap into that already um, existing desire of people to go there to understand these things um, by applying the new technical solution. To making it easier and better, quicker, cheaper to do that. Yeah. And actually, like our company, you could say what in, in our business plan I start by talking about what is the company basically about? It's about the same thing the internet's about disintermediation. But what are we disintermediating? We're dis- disintermediating a certain kind of travel. Well, other kinds of travel have been disintermediated. We have telecommuting, we have telemedicine, and now we have what you could call teletourism, except that that word, which we wanted to use, is, um, is being trademarked by a company. doesn't seem to be doing anything with it. So we have to settle for virtual tourism, which isn't quite as good, I think. But um, the the teletourism market, uh, in our sense, is very big, potentially. The, the thing that we're trying to disintermediate is the cultural tourism industry, real-world tourism industry which according to the United Nations World um, Tourism Organization in 2019 was worth about 775 billion dollars and mm-hmm. we don't want to replace it we want to enhance it we want to help raise we want if we're successful more people will go to Baalbek because a lot of people never heard of Baalbek but by using our virtual tour which is free by the way um, they will it'll suddenly be on their mental map and they some of them, anyway, will want to go there. That's what we hope will happen. When they're there, they if they have it on their cell phone, they can use it as an AR app to, to do their own self-guided tour. And when they come home, they can deepen their understanding of what they've seen, keep the memory alive. Um, so we think that virtual tourism and real-world tourism can work hand-in-glove, but that's what we're sort of disintermediating. just the need to get on a plane and make that trip and spend all that money, um, yeah. on top of which we're... we're we're showing you not only the ruins, which we do, but the way we're bringing the ruins back to life, which even going there is not going to do for you.
0: Right. Right. Well, that's fascinating. I think I think it's wonderful what you're doing, and uh, you know, appreciate. It. We've, we're just over an hour, which is usually about the length of uh, our podcast. And I really appreciate your time. Fascinating stuff. I've 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 always been, you know, like I said, I've always had an interest in it. I think it's because I was a, around a bunch of Egyptologists as a child. So maybe that's a part of what it was. Um, but I really I really think this is a wonderful thing. And obviously, your work you've done is, is is fascinating. I can't wait to see what happens next. I really uh, I'll be pushing for the uh, the Rome video game, uh, because I think that would be a really great, uh, a great thing to have as well. So thank you so much, Bernie, for doing this. Thank you, Chris,
2: for inviting me. I greatly enjoyed talking to you. I'm looking forward to many more conversations with you online or offline. (laughs) It sounds great. (laughs)